How long do you normally share for? Talk as long as you want, 20 minutes, something okay. like that. Yeah, I remember uh, I, I do get a bit nervous when I'm giving a chair, not as nervous as I used to. When I did my very first chair, I was so nervous uh, that I was talking to a, an older member and he said to me, um, are you planning to tell the truth? And I said, yes. He said, well, what have you got to be nervous about? Yeah. And I, I found that advice really, really helpful. No speculation, just experience, just to tell my story as truthfully as I can. And it does change because uh, sometimes I realise after some time that something that I always believed to be true wasn't actually true, you know. And uh, it's been a, an interesting journey. So I'm going to tell um, you the story of uh, two periods of sobriety. I first went to my very first meeting in 1974. Uh, some people find that hard to believe. I'm, I'm actually 70 in five days' time. But um, you see this uh, sort of fairly young-looking guy, and they think, how can he possibly have? Obviously two. <laughs> anyway, this is the truth. I went to this meeting in 1974. And at the time, I'd, uh, I'd done one of those government training courses. You know, I wanted to sort of, I've been a bit of a hippie and worked in holiday camps and hotels and all that. Uh, got married very young and had two children. And um, I was trying to make a new start of it. I wanted to be a decent husband and father and that. So I'd been along to the job centre and I wanted to sign up to train as either a social worker or something similar. So I came out uh, having signed up to be a plumber or a plasterer. Uh, don't ask me how I think I got to the P's the second time around and just clicked the two of them, you know. So I ended up training as a plumber and moving down to Cornwall thinking I was going to start this lovely new new life down there in the country. <laughs> and uh, they had this scheme down there, a new town housing scheme. And uh, if you had a skill, they would give you somewhere to live. But I hadn't realised that you were supposed to get let them get you the job. I got my own job, so I was disqualified from the scheme. And my wife and I, with our two children, who quite enjoyed their stay in um, in Cornwall, apart from the fact that I was still an alcoholic, you know. I mean, I arrived there thinking that I was going to have a leather armchair by the um, open fire in the smuggler's arms, you know, and uh, uh, I'd have a Labrador, you know, and, the, and someone would say, who's that, you know, respectable-looking gentleman in the chair over there, you know. And uh, she would be bringing me my, brand, my brandy in a warm glass, you know, and uh, she'd say, oh, that's, that's, that's so-and-so, you know. And the truth is I arrived there and I was making faces in front of the dartboard, you know, uh, absolutely bored out of my brains and as pissed as a fart within a matter of days, you know, so um, I'd taken my alcoholism with me. And we came back to England and I went to live with my parents who were both chronic alcoholics. My wife went to live with hers who lived in a very posh part of, uh, of London, Wimbledon. And um, she sent me a letter. And the letter had uh, an article from Reader's Digest outlining four types of drinkers. There was um, uh, the teetotaler, social drinker, dependent drinker, and then alcoholic, and I, I knew I was an alcoholic, and I phoned AA, and um, they, you know, they told me where a meeting was in the centre of London, and I remember putting on a suit, I think I'd won some money on the horses, and I'd bought a suit, and uh, arrived at the meeting, you know, thinking like, you know, uh, let's get this sorted out, you know, and there was uh, people drinking tea out of plastic cups, and, you know, poor bastards, like, you know, <laughs> for all my disasters, I was still as arrogant as anything, you know. I mean, I, I remember hearing once somebody say that they could uh, think they were a genius and feel like a piece of shit simultaneously, and that described where I was perfectly, because that's how it was for me. You know, I, I still had this sort of arrogance. I read five pages of philosophy made simple, and I thought I should be writing my own book. 
you know what I mean? You know? Anyway, so um, I'm sitting at this meeting and you know, I did identify with uh, some of the things. You know, uh, going to the pub after work and thinking I'll just have a, a drink and then I'll have two and then I'll leave at six and then I'll, I'll leave at seven and now fuck it, I'll just stay and ringing the wife with some ludicrous excuse, you know, uh, and, you know, depriving my family of, of money and um, neglect and all the rest of it, you know, and I, I'd, I'd reached a point where I actually hated myself. But anyway, I left that meeting. They, there was a group of people who were quite evangelical and they, they sort of dragged me on to another meeting at the end of that one. And they were, they were sort of lovely people. I mean, you know, they got me onto this other meeting. They gave me a big book and I didn't even know that it had um, an inscription on the inside page. I never opened it, you know. I couldn't wait to get away from them. I thought I'd been captured by the Salvation Army or something, you know. So anyway, I got a, a job as a porter on a slam estate in the East End. Uh, my job was cleaning out the dustbin chutes uh, sweeping the grounds and running the bathhouse twice a week because there were no baths in the flats. And, um, you know, it was a place to live with my family, you know, so, uh, you know, decorated it, you know, thought it was uh, great, you know. And a few months later, I was visiting the psychiatrist and I asked him if I was schizophrenic. And I, I really believed there was something seriously mentally wrong with me. I didn't think I was just an alcoholic. And uh, he assured me that I was not a schizophrenic. You know, he said, who give you that idea? That's not the case. And they put me on uh, antabuse. Uh, you know, I don't know if any of you have taken it, but if you drink on antabuse, you flare up like a, a beacon and you can't breathe properly, you know. And uh, they tried me on, um, on Valium. And I, I took one and I refused to take it. I said, no point coming off alcohol if I'm going to go on to drugs. So I stopped that. So anyway, it didn't occur to me to stop going to the pub did not cross my mind, you know. So I was going to the pub and drinking soft drinks and people there were really behind me. They, my parents were both alcoholics, so I said they were actually banned from the pub, which is probably why I chose it. And uh, the guys there were very supportive and I shifted from um, this, uh, uh, you know, soft drinks to, you know, that 2%, um, uh, you know, shandy. I thought I'd get away with that. And of course, I flared up like a beacon, I couldn't breathe properly because I was drinking it by the gallon, you know. I drank the entire stock of the, the bar in no time at all. And um, so naturally, I stopped taking the interviews. I st was still convinced that I was never going to drink again. I was swearing blind that, you know. Uh, and then when, when they ran out of um, the bottle shandy, I said, oh, well, just a little bit of beer and a lot of lemonade. It's exactly the same, you know. And then I said, fuck the lemonade, you know. And the other guys all, you know, unanimously shouted out, don't do it, Jim, because they knew what was going to happen. A couple of days later, I was literally kneeling on the floor in front of these guys, begging them to lend me the money to, to get as drunk as I needed to get. Because I'd never had any money. I was always poncing around and, you know, all the rest of it. So anyway, I pretended to take the, uh, the interviews again when my wife begged me to take it uh, and deliberately went out and got rat and in the morning. She was still pleading with me, you know, and I just told her to fuck off and take the children and go somewhere else because I felt like I had nothing, nothing to give her. And I tried to drink myself to death for a few days. You know, I just drank everything I could. Like, you know, I sold everything. I sold a leather jacket, you know, guitar, you know, the lot. I even tried to sell my flat, which I didn't even own, you know. <laughs> Move, bloke moved in with me. He was another alcoholic. Give me five pound rent. I'm like, you know, I drank that. And he said to me, you know, well, we could set up this business. And, and I said to him, listen, if we had a business and we had £30,000, we'd still be in this same fucking pub 
drinking this same shit and uh, it would make no difference to our lives whatsoever, you know. And uh, I remember wandering around in this pub in the East End uh, saying to people, I don't understand, life doesn't make any sense to me. And eventually someone said to me, well, why don't you just fuck off and top yourself? And I remember going into the toilet and then coming out again and I'd managed to smash the back of my head. And I've got this vague recollection, recollection of doing it on purpose that I tried to fall against the sink, ended up on the floor, and then I'd lean forward and from my head back and uh, came out and the woman behind the counter fainted with blood everywhere. Ended up in uh, the London hospital in Whitechapel. And, um, you know, I left that hospital having chatted to this psychiatrist, you know, they, they recognised I was in a bad way, like, you know, I was covered in blood and all the rest of it. And um, I had to go past the meeting that I'd been to 11 months earlier. And it happened to be on at the time when I was passing. So I was heading down to London Bridge, I was going to jump and I passed this meeting. I went in there to give myself this one last chance and it actually moved around the corner. So I still had to make that bit of effort and I went into this meeting and uh, I got up to leave because I didn't think they had anything to offer and the bloke grabbed my coat, put me back. And, um, you yeah, know, they, they just, they uh, rallied, they they just responded to me, you know. These were, is a, in the city of London, they're all business people in suits. And I was quite literally covered in blood. It was all over my hair, all over my clothes, you know, dirt and blood. And uh, these guys dragged me onto a cafe afterwards. And they were great. They just, they surrounded me in the cafe to make sure I couldn't get out and persuaded me to stay alive at that time. And uh, a bloke called John W, who was, um, you know, uh, one of these news reporters, you'd hear his voice from the, um, on the TV, but you didn't see his face, like, you know. And he'd actually cut his throat once in a hotel, you know, and um, uh, it'd been through the same same as me, really, you know. And he, he said to me, look, you know, the door swings both ways. Here's my phone number. If you want help, give me a ring. And if, if you want to go back out, go back out, you know. And uh, and he kept me sober. I rang him every day and he'd, he'd say to me, what are you doing for your sobriety today? And he never told me what to do. And he used to lead me to the right, to the conclusion that I needed to go to meetings, you know. I said to him once after a little while, well, I was thinking of going to the pictures. I mean, I've been going to meetings every day. And he said to me, oh, so John Wayne's keeping you sober these days, is he? <laughs> so I went to a meeting, you know, and uh, I'd forgotten that I'd applied to go to university, to go to college. Uh, I'd left school at 15, you know, and I got this invitation to go in and, you know, uh, I got into this college through these very basic exams that you take when you were 16, you know, and I was 25, <laughs> coming up to 25, I was 24 at the time. And um, they, uh, you know, they let me onto this course. And um, when I told the people at the meeting, they said to me, just think of the difference that you could make to people like you if you succeed. And it was like rocket fuel to me. I, I really wanted to become someone worth being because I'd been a loser all my life, you know. So to become someone who could help other people was a huge, huge thing to me, you know. So I went in and I started these five O-levels. And I was working, you know, in the evenings because my wife came back with the kids, uh, working in the evenings, doing the course during the day. And I was literally falling off the chair in the class. And they managed to get me a, a discretionary grant to study, um, you know, as a family man with two kids. You know, it was a, a, a labour labor local council and they, had, they did that sort of thing in those days. Uh, Thatcher abolished all that, of course. But anyway, they, they helped me out. They gave me a grant enough to uh, support myself and my family. 
and I got these five O levels and I went along to the meeting to tell them this great success like I got these five O levels and uh, I sobbed like a child because even to come back up because <laughs> even though in my head I thought I was a genius in my heart I never felt it so passing those exams was a huge huge psychological barrier and I, I started my own A levels became student union chairperson and all that sort of thing and a big turning point occurred when um, my mother, who I said was chronic alcoholic, I got her to go to a meeting. I took her to a meeting. Also took her to uh, get assessed for, a, you know, to go into um, rehab. And she was told that she lived in the um, uh, the wrong catchment area, so they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't accommodate her. And uh, unfortunately, she went into a derelict building with a, with other alcoholics and got battered. And eventually, uh, after two and a half weeks, she died of her injuries. Uh, murdered by personal persons unknown, you know, and it huge. It hit me hugely, you know. And initially, I because I was the strongest remaining member of the family. I've got two sisters. I looked after my dad. I was afraid that he might uh, commit suicide or something. So, um, yeah, I was just I was keeping the the, you know, the sort of whatever up, you know. And uh, I was, in other ways, I was all over the place, really. You know, I'm surprised I didn't have a uh, you know breakdown, to be honest. And it, it broke that whole spell of, I mean, if, if people said things like, um, you know, in God's universe, everything happens for a reason, it just sounded not just like nonsense. It sounded insulting, you know, so I couldn't sort of go along with that. And, and it never occurred to me to drink, but um, about five years later, I did. And it took me quite a long time to, um, to stop again. But what had happened was I got my first job after university and getting a teaching qualification. I studied for seven years as a full-time student and um, uh, when I got the job they, they interview involved going to a, a, a pub as part of the interview day and I uh, I did the same mistake I had bottle shandies and you know and I was away with the fairies you know and um, it took me a long time I was in and out in and out for years and eventually I came back in 1990 and I've been sober ever since then you know so 31 years and um, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I needed to do, I felt like I, I needed something that went a little bit deeper than the rational mind. So I started, uh, I dedicated myself to meditation. I went and lived in a retreat centre for about, uh, well, seven weeks and then another two, so nine weeks. And I arrived there, I gave up cigarettes when I arrived. And I remember going through withdrawal symptoms with a pickaxe, you know, sort of. Was, and I'm with these guys, you know, sort of, they're all really quiet guys. It wasn't complete silence, but they didn't chat which really suited me i didn't need anyone asking me questions and i just i spent quite a lot of time weeping you know often on my own i went for walks in the, the woods around in the retreat center and just wept you know and uh, allowed myself to remember uh things that i was desperately trying to forget i did not want uh, to be that bloke whose mother was murdered i didn't want to be that you know what i mean and um I remember allowing myself to just remember what she looked like in the hospital bed because it was unrecognisable. It was unbelievable, you know, and to just be with that, you know, not to be pushing it away, not to be clinging to it, not, no stewardship, but at the same time sitting with it and recognising it. And it was very, very helpful to me. So uh, by the time I came out of there, you know, I, was, I was sort of, I had a really good meditation practice, which I kept up. I've remained uh, committed to to that. I don't formally meditate anymore at all. I just sit. I don't do any 
technique or anything like that. And uh, it seems to suit me. I did uh, form a meditation for over 20 years and taught it. And I've, I've never at any time tried to convert anyone to anything that I believe. But, um, you know, it helped me. And that's the truth of it, you know. So, uh, you know, um, I don't know how long I've been going. I, I don't want to stay too long on the thing. But, um, you know, the things that have, have helped me enormously, you know, I love being around people who celebrate sobriety, you know. I'm amazed at uh, what I've uh, experienced in AA as a result of being sober. You know, in my second time around, uh, when I finally stopped drinking, I couldn't, um, I, I remember having, I mentioned the other night when I was talking, you know, uh, I, I was invited to have four tins of lager and, and watch a video. By the time I was into the, we had two each. By the time I was into the halfway through the, the first one, I'd already started working out where to get the money because I didn't have any money. And then I decided that I'd go down to Biddy's bar and I'd lend, I'd give her my passport and she'd lend me 30 quid. So I drank the second uh, tin, never mind the fucking video, on the way down to the bar. And Biddy came across with his 30 quid and I was away with the fairies, you know. And that was my last drink. You know, in the morning, they, they kicked me out of the house. And in the morning, um, they said to me, you can stay another week if you promise not to, to drink. And I, I looked on my hand on heart and I could not say with any certainty that I wasn't going to drink. And I knew that I was out of control and that I needed help, you know. And when I got back into A that day, uh, I met up with a bloke that I'd known when I first got sober 46 years ago, to, you know, this year, sort of. And uh, he, you know, been sober for about 45 then. He'd slipped after about a year, never since. And uh, he helped me out. He gave me a place to stay. And, um, you know, it was very encouraging. So the help that I've had in AA has been unbelievable, you know. And I don't mind what anyone believes as long as they don't shove it down my throat. But I do think that if people build their sobriety on shaky foundations, they're in trouble. You know, so I tend to, to want to keep my feet firmly on the ground, you know. So anyway, I'll finish with that. And um, thank you so much for having me. I was uh, uh, for a while actually an ordained Buddhist, believe it or not, you know, so I, I gave that up, <laughs> resigned and all that. I had, a, I had a special name and everything. <laughs> but I've moved beyond that. Anyway, so uh, thank you very much for your time.